According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23. Actually, no, don't do that. Let's go to Mark 12. We'll start with Mark 12. We'll begin with Mark 12, then Luke 20, and then we'll spend the rest of our day in Matthew chapter 23. We have a new episode to begin today, episode 10, in Jesus' final work of week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 10, the, t- the title is Jesus' Last Sermon. It's actually not his last sermon, but we're adapting a harmony of the Gospels for which I did not write, and so I'm stuck with a couple of titles I would rather change. Uh, maybe, maybe I will change. I mean, we're adapting it, right? So part of adaptation could be changing some of the titles that could be written better. Jesus' last sermon, episode 10 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. We are still on Wednesday of the Passion Week. We're approaching, uh, in fact, uh, everything we've seen so far is we can pretty well put into Wednesday morning. Uh, a lot of the Q&A, a lot of the arguments back and forth with Sad- Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, I expect that this sermon is uh, going to be in the bulk of the afternoon. And then he will depart from here and uh, head back out to uh, uh, Mount Olivet. There are some other things coming up. So um, anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit as we put this together. Let's start with some prayer, making sure that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, you are a God of grace and faithfulness. We thank you this morning that your grace is sufficient and that your uh, mercies are renewed. Father, great is thy faithfulness. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study to show ourselves approved, and we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Father, and teach us not only what your word says, but what it means and and how we should make application. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. One thing, just quickly, um, (laughs) as you're looking at the screen, Jesus' last sermon, we got Matthew 23. Mark 12, and Luke 20. And one thing you might notice, uh, in Mark 12, how many verses are we looking at there? Verses 38, 39, and 40, right? Just three verses. And then um, Luke 20. Uh, Again, it's three, inclusive, 45, 46, 47. Yeah, three verses. And uh, and then in Matthew, what are we looking at? (laughs) Yeah, 1 through 39. Okay, so... That's a, that's a clue, all right? Uh, there's, uh, the gospel we're going to spend most of our time in is going to be Matthew. Uh, we do want to understand uh, you know, the shorter records, and we'll go through those first, and that way we'll have them in our thinking, uh, and we'll see how they are incorporated into the Matthew material. And then, uh, for the most part, we'll spend the bulk of our time, though, in the longest of the, uh, of the records. All right, so Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. You'll notice this follows immediately in the conflict about uh, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, uh, the material we have gone through for the past couple of weeks uh, with the uh, Psalm 110 quotation and his uh, wonderful development of being seated and everything we saw related to session. And uh, David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And then Im- immediately after that, In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So there's the short account. Boy, I could just camp on those three verses for for quite a while. There's a lot of doctrine in there. Um, and so forth. All right, over now to Luke 20. We'll see a very similar context and a very similar content. Verses 45 through 47. It's interesting in Mark, it does not reach the end of the chapter, but in Luke, it does reach the end of the chapter. And then goes into the widow's might 
in the next chapter. All right, but in Luke 20, verses 45 through 47, and while all the people were listening, again, you notice in the verse before that, therefore David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So it's the same order, it's the same sequence of events in all three of the synoptic gospels. The challenge that that, uh, he throws out there, that he is the son of David, he's also the son of God. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. It's almost word for word, isn't it? Pretty close. Okay. So the Matthew or the Mark and the Luke parallels are virtually identical. Um, what's the big deal about walking around in long robes? <laughs> you know, I don't have anything against long robes. You have anything against long robes? You know, bath robes? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, after the children were born, it was kind of mandatory. You had to walk around in long robes, kind of a thing. You know, before kids are around, you, well, never mind. That's a that's a different story. But no, the whole point to long robes. Um, and in particular, scribes, we don't even have Pharisees listed here. Pharisees are listed in Matthew, but scribes are listed both in Mark and in Luke. Uh, the, the long robe is the priestly garment. Uh, the, the long robe uh, is, it means you're not working. <laughs> uh, a workaday kind of guy, a carpenter, a, a laborer, uh, uh, anybody, you know, you know, a baker, a butcher, I mean, whatever. Um, if you're in the workaday world, you're not wearing a long robe. Okay? You've, got a, you've got a basic outer tunic. And sandals, and, and, and the long robe is the indicator that here is somebody that doesn't work. Okay, in, in the spiritual realm, here's somebody that's set apart. Okay, and it can be very proper, like with pastors or, or what have you, uh, set apart from the workaday world, so that you're focused 100% on spiritual ministry. And so that's you know by design. Well, here are these guys. And they are scribes. It is their occupation. It is their, but it is also a mark of their status as being set apart, as being, uh, and Pharisees as well, being set apart, that uh, that they really, really craved, as it were. So, uh, and, and what a contrast with the Lord who worked, you know, and the fishermen who worked, and and these guys that were working, um, in, in different applications there. So I just wanted to highlight that. There's other things. Devouring widows' houses. Boy, I tell you, um, that's an indictment on much of our um, things that happen today in televangelist ministries or even just other charities or other uh, things. Taking advantage of elderly people that, that you know, they want to help. They're generous, but they're also gullible. And they're also, uh, they can be victimized, you understand? And so, um, man, devouring... Widows' houses and the idea that to just uh, leech off of every every nickel you can uh, for the church or for the temple or for what you know whatever, and then uh, you know until you got it all, right? Horrible, horrible. And there are ministries that'll do things like that today, and it's I'm I'm sure the Lord's as disgusted as we are, more disgusted than we are in that realm. So we'll we'll have some notes on that coming up. But let's get now to Matthew. Matthew 23, and we'll take a look at the introduction and then the ending, and uh, we'll spot what's in the middle, and how do we stretch three verses into 39 verses? <laughs> Boy, Matthew must have just been wordy, you know? No, Matthew, Matthew is unique of all the Gospels. He is the Gospel of discourse, and uh, there's some things we'll have to look at here in this chapter. All right. But you'll notice it's a brand new chapter in Matthew's record, unlike Mark and Luke. Uh, it does, though, follow the episode with the son of David um, question that no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. But there's something else that connects these two episodes as well. It's the idea of sitting down. Um, the Lord had said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. All that teaching we did last week. When I look what introduces this week. Uh, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, that's the difference, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. 
They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So what we have here is a much more drawn out description of what was very short in Mark and Luke. The fact that they, uh, they, they like the long robes and the, and the place of honor and respectful greetings. Um, Matthew gives a much longer account for what fuels this uh, prideful attitude and the hypocrisy, the way that this prideful attitude expresses hypocrisy in their, uh, in their lives. So uh, this is what we're looking at here. All right, now when you glance beyond this, we're going to have seven woes. Your, your pericope might say eight woes. And then uh, that'll take us down through verse 33. And then we've got a warning to Jerusalem in verses 34 through 36. A lament over Jerusalem in 37 through 39. So quite a bit more in Matthew than what we have in, in the Mark and Luke parallel so we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in matthew starting off point one jesus final public message and there's the keys this final public message the title may say jesus last sermon but that's in a public venue to friends and enemies alike his final public message is for the crowds and his disciples for the crowds and his disciples. Interesting phrase. We've seen it before. And uh, sometimes he just addresses the crowds. Sometimes he's just addressing the disciples. And I think we've got a the way I've settled it in my mind anyway, as far as when I when I see different terms, what do, what do I understand by them? I think. Um, because when it says he was speaking to his disciples, in context, there probably are some hangers-on. There's probably some crowds overlooking or eavesdropping or in the, neighbor, in the neighborhood. And, and yet, when the text explicitly says he says to his disciples, then we understand they are his primary audience. They are the ones he's speaking to. They're the ones he has in mind as he is speaking. Okay? Um, likewise, when it says he's speaking to the crowds and it doesn't indicate his disciples... He may have disciples there. The disciples may also be on hand, or the disciples may, may be eavesdropping, but they're not the main targets of the message. See, does that make sense? Because the, the explicit statement is, he said to the crowds, right? Well, when we have crowds and disciples, I think we need to understand that they're both present, and they're both in his thinking. So in, in many ways, he might even have two messages simultaneously being spoken. He may even have two things that are going out, a message embedded in a message, a message that could mean one thing for the group at large and something even more for his disciples, for those that have additional teaching where they can connect things together. All right. And that's a, that's an awesome message. And it's usually it's um, it's hard for a human being to craft a message like that. But the Holy Spirit does it all the time. All right. Holy Spirit does it where it's stunning how a, a Sunday morning message can go out and a hundred people hear it and they they can walk away with entirely different applications or different emphasis or something just hit them like a two by four. Okay. And it's uh, it really is remarkable how the Holy Spirit coordinates all those things. Well, this is a message to the crowds and to the disciples and and both need to hear beware the scribes and the Pharisees. The crowds need to beware the scribes and Pharisees in one context because there's a danger for them. But the disciples also need to beware the, the scribes and the Pharisees with a slightly different context because it's still dangerous, but it's a different danger for the disciples. The danger for the, for the crowds is that they can, uh, well, they have to learn from the, the scribes and Pharisees. They have to apply the teaching, but they have to be on guard against the hypocrisy, okay? The application for the, to beware for the disciples is they could get martyred. <laughs> they could get put to death. They could be uh, attacked. They could be, Christ is about to be crucified in 48 hours. Um, so there's a danger that he's warning the disciples, and that danger is different than the danger he's warning the crowds. And I think that's one way in which 
you can have an embedded message or two messages contained in the same message as what we see here. Now, um, this is his final public message, still to come, or his upper room discourse. And we'll spend quite a bit of time on that. That's really John 13 through 17. Uh, different people number that differently. Uh, I've seen breakdowns on, on that where it's really only 14 through 16 as the actual discourse. Chapter 13 is kind of preparation for it. But he does so much speaking in chapter 13, I don't mind lumping it in. And then, uh, likewise, chapter 17 is his high priestly prayer, which is not really his discourse to his disciples. It's his prayer to the Father. Uh, but it does come immediately after the discourse. The disciples are still with him while he offers the prayer. And then when he's done with the prayer, afterwards, he and his disciples leave and, and go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So I, don't, uh, I, I tend to put the whole stretch together, 13 through 17, in my mind. 13 through 17 is the unit that is, should be labeled upper room discourse. And it is the unit that has more church age applications than anything else in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? It's uh, tremendous that we, we glean church age application there in mystery still, unrevealed, not fully exposed until the church age. But the content of 13 through 17 will have more church application than anything else you'll see in uh, the gospel record. All right, so still to come is the Upper Room Discourse, also the Mount Olivet Discourse, which is the next two chapters here in Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. Um, I believe that also is a private message. This is when he's on his way home. Remember, he was sleeping each night yet in uh, Bethany, uh, and so that required departing the eastern gate of Jerusalem, crossing the valley, going up to the Mount of Olives, and then arounding the, the shoulder of the Mount of Olives to the far side where, uh, where Bethany was located. And so the Mount Olivet Discourse, which is powerful for eschatology, is powerful for Second Advent and Millennial Studies, Tribulational Millennial Studies. Uh, that's Matthew 24 and 25. I believe those were private messages. So this is really his last public uh, lengthy sermon that he's going to be giving here in the temple to the crowds at Jerusalem. If you glance at your harmony, you'll see the events that we have coming up. Um, the... Um, the last events here on Wednesday, uh, episode 9 is Jesus and David. Jesus' last sermon is number 10. Uh, the poor widow's great offering is number 11. And then I believe he is when he departs Jerusalem for the afternoon uh, and uh, delivers the Olivet Discourse where it says Jesus tells the future in episode 12 and the uh, parables that are given in Matthew 25. So you see episodes 12 and 13 there. Um, he tells the date of the crucifixion. This is when he's finally back in, in Lazarus' house. He uh, is anointed by Mary at Simon's feast. And then Judas goes out that night, sneaks, sneaks back into Jerusalem and contracts the betrayal. That leads you to Thursday morning, the preparation for the Passover and the eating of the Passover meal and the foot washing and the things there. So you see what uh, there's not going to be a, another public appearance in the temple on Thursday. All right. When they return back to Jerusalem, it's going to be in the late afternoon to um, partake of the Passover meal. Okay. So that's point one. Jesus' final public message is for the crowds and his disciples. That's Matthew 23, 1. Still to come are his upper room discourse and the Mount Olivet discourse, which are private messages. I should put that in the other order, shouldn't I? Because the Mount Olivet discourse comes first and then upper room is in the night in which he was betrayed. I'll rewrite that and put that and update that for the notes. Secondly, I call this, in Matthew 23, I call this the great hypocrisy discourse. That's my title for it. The great hypocrisy discourse. There's going to be seven woes or eight woes, depending on what Greek manuscript you're looking at. The great hypocrisy discourse is not typically included in Matthew's five great discourses. You read... You read uh, 100 commentaries on Matthew, and 90 of them will tell you that Matthew is the gospel of discourse. And there were five great discourses recorded in the gospel of Matthew. And I even taught that when we introduced the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, discourse number one. Um, but I think it ought to be. I think it ought to be. It's 39 verses long. You've got these seven woes. You've got some powerful teaching in here as it relates to exaltation and humility. Um, 
There, there's a lot in here. And, I, and in my mind, why exclude it? There's another stretch that gets excluded a lot, and it's a, a passage in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 30. It's another woe passage. There's woes in Matthew 11, similar to what we have here. It's uh, not exactly a short message, and uh, I think we can label it the Discourse on John the Baptist. And if we label it the Discourse on John the Baptist, then we can think of Matthew's seven great discourses, <laughs> all right, instead of Matthew's five great discourses. And I think we got a better understanding of the Gospel of Matthew that way. If we think of the seven great discourses, and you can think your way through Matthew from chapter 1 to chapter 28. And... Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, a lot of the goal to only have five is there's different breakdowns have kind of matched it up with like the five books of Moses or, you know, that would start the Old Testament. What starts the New Testament? You know, five discourses of Matthew. OK. All right. I get that. Or uh, or, you know, the five uh, books of Psalms. You know, there's 150 Psalms, but they are collected into five collections of books. So I get that. But. I don't want to cut these two discourses short, so I, I think in my outline of the Gospel of Matthew anyway, when the Bolander Study Bible gets published, we're going to, we're going to, um, oh please, I hope, that, hope to never see that, are you kidding me? Um, when that does get published, we'll see the seven discourses of Matthew, and we're going to include the discourse on John the Baptist and the, uh, the great hypocrisy discourse here of Matthew 23. All right, thirdly, let's look at our introduction then. The introduction establishes the theme for the entire chapter. If you teach verses 1 through 12, you've taught the whole chapter, functionally. You've taught all seven of the woes. You've taught the principles. Now, this is a uh, diatribe against pride. And it is a uh, fervent urging to humility. It's drawing the line in the sand to say, are you going to imitate Satan or are you going to imitate Christ? And, uh, and, and just hitting the disciples with it. And if they're, uh, if they're going to fall into the realm of, of pride, then they don't need to be disciples. They don't need to move on to become apostles in the church age. So the introduction establishes the theme for the entire chapter. Again, we can look at these first 12 verses here. I read down through... Seven, I guess, is where I left off. We can see a little bit more of their pride here in a moment. They, um, what is it that they love? In verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues. Earlier there was a message where he said, don't, don't sit right up front in the right-hand seat. Uh, sit down in the end, and then if, uh, if your host invites you to move up higher, well, then that's grace, and you get uh, there's, a, there's a blessing to being exalted. But... You don't want to be in a place too high above your station, and then the host uh, actually moves you down further, and you get embarrassed by uh, by not being half as important as you thought you were. Um, so we had that message already, and it it, it gets uh, we get reminded of that as we see this here. Chief seats in the synagogue. Why are they why are they so fixated on seating assignments? <laughs> you know, they they seat themselves in the chair of Moses. In the uh, chief seats in the synagogues. Is that any different than some churches where you have uh, the designated seating in different uh, different things? And where, uh, you know, in some of the big fancy cathedrals and so forth, where uh, you actually purchase your own box, your own luxury balcony and whatever, and it's a mark of your status and it's a mark of your uh, support kind of a thing. And, and what have you. Well, they're doing what they're doing. I'm... I know what I'm not going to imitate when we uh, when we uh, set up new seats here, for example. All right. What else, though? Res uh, respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi. By, oh, the titles. The titles. Rabbi is only the, the beginning step. There's actually a rank above rabbi called rabban, okay, which was higher. And uh, then there's nasi, which was the pinnacle. Uh, the ruler of the Sanhedrin was called the Nasi. And, the, and for this whole age of what's called Mishnaic Judaism, the, the Nasi'im were, the, were like the rock stars, the, hall, the, the, the baseball hall of fame of Judaism were these guys, including Gamaliel and Hillel and, and, and all these guys. And boy, that's what they craved. 
And that's the problem. So we'll have to detail that when we get to his instructions here about do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And we're going to do a little bit of work on this just to orient ourselves to what um, first century Judaism was all about. Uh, Sometimes it's called rabbinic Judaism or it's probably a century too early to fairly call it rabbinic Judaism. But anyway, Mishnaic Judaism would be a better label. And, uh, and that's what you have to understand. That's the background for those three verses. Otherwise, we get in trouble. And too many people just fix on that father thing, and they think that it's, they're going to be climbing all over Roman Catholicism with that. Okay? And these verses have nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. And uh, uh, don't just focus in on that father thing and think that... Uh, you understand what because there's teacher, there's father, there's leader, and these three aspects and the the whole application of what their religion was even about is what these verses are dealing with. So we need to understand uh, the Jude- the Judaic background to uh, to break that down. Otherwise, I'm I'm am I violating this uh, verse eight by having pastor teacher on my business card? Right, my business card says Bob Bolander, pastor teacher, Austin Bible Church. Or actually, I think Austin Bible Church comes first. It doesn't matter what the order is. But I have the words pastor, teacher on my business card. Am I violating Matthew 23, 8? Well, it says don't be called teacher. All right. No, I, my conscience is clear. I'm cool with the business cards. All right. Um, and we can call each other teacher. If you're a teacher, you can, you know, if I'm a pastor, you can call me Pastor Bob or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, and if you don't call me Pastor Bob, if you just call me Bob, I'm not going to get offended. I'm not going to get all snooty. I'm not going to be all huffy and like, well, that's Pastor Bob to you, okay? No. Which is actually the, the whole point of this. If we're wrapped up in our titles and insistent upon them, okay, and trust me, there's a lot of that going around. People a lot, you know, uh, that, that, that have the credentials and they insist on it. Well, that's doctor. You know, call me doctor. and what Crazy, all right? <laughs> like the Sunday morning when... I'll never forget, Carol uh, Patriarchal came up. She and Joe were pretty new visiting, and, and she came up to me, and she said, Are you a doctor? I said, Why, are you sick? <laughs> I have lots of fun with that. All right. Well, if we're going to fixate on our titles, then we've missed the point. It's like what we were dealing with on Sunday. If you bear the name Jew and all of the pride that they had in religious depravity in Romans chapter 2, if the label is what you're craving and there's no reality behind it, then you've missed the point. So we'll deal with that in verses 8, 9, and 10 as a unit. The fundamental principles, though, in verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That summarizes the introduction. It summarizes the entire chapter. It is uh, not the first time he's taught about this. It won't be the last. Uh, the apostles will continue this theme on into the uh, the books of the New Testament. It's all about humbling ourselves. That's imitation of Christ. It's about avoiding exalting ourselves. That's imitation of Satan. There's two patterns to imitate. Satan exalted himself. We And we'll see those verses. The Lord humbled himself. And victory over the exaltation rebellion only comes through the humbling activity of the Christian way of life. So hopefully uh, some of these big themes will will come out. Sub-point A. Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. That's in the immediate context of the message prior to this one, Matthew uh, 22, 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus did not claim that seat. He was awarded that seat. And he never assumed to exalt himself or to lay hold of it until such time as it was offered to him. Another scripture in Hebrews somewhere in the back of my mind. I'm thinking about the honor of the priesthood that no one claims that for themselves either. And I'll find that verse before next week because I want to incorporate that in this class too. 
not only his ruling as head, but also his function as a priest. All right, because that's the next application in Psalm 110, is you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And no one takes that honor for himself either. But it has to be, he has to be appointed. So Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. That's Matthew 22:44. Satan and his brood claim seats for themselves. Satan and his brood claim seats for themselves. The example of Satan is Isaiah 14:13, claiming seats for himself and his brood. Now, the group that's in focus here are the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, in Matthew 3, 7, Matthew 12, 34, and Matthew 23, 33, we have these groups all pinpointed as the brood of vipers. They're all pinpointed as Satan's brood. He gets so blatant by the time he gets to John 8, 44, he just lays it out there and says, you are of your father, the devil. So Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the father granted it. Satan and his brood claim seats for themselves. All right. Let's uh, look at, before I leave Matthew, let's look at these uh, references to the brood in Matthew 3, Matthew 12, and then coming up again in Matthew 23, 33, this very chapter where we are. Matthew uh, 3, 7. The baptizer is baptizing at the Jordan. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John's message was of repentance and primarily was directed towards believers, reversionistic believers that need to get their walk right before the kingdom comes upon them. And to bear fruit, keeping with repentance. And uh, he flat out tells these unbelievers that they're not even the objects of this warning message. This message isn't even for them. All right, so that's Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 12, 34. This is uh, actually Jesus speaking. And uh, the Pharisees are once again in view here. You spot them back in verse 24, and they're accusing him of using demonic power to cast out demons, which is kind of an interesting accusation to make. Jesus uh, says that's, Stupid, I'm using the Holy Spirit's power to cast out demons. And besides, what power do you use when you cast out demons? <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, conundrum for them. But in uh, discussing these things with these Pharisees, he says, uh, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And then in verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And it goes on to talk about the treasure. Good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. All right. So anyway, uh, still the Pharisees and Sadducees in view. Here it's just the Pharisees in view. And in the final passage in chapter 23, verse 33, we got scribes and Pharisees in view. So what's the common thread between all three? Pharisees. <laughs> right. Or the common thread between uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees and scribes and Pharisees. All three times Pharisees are in the picture. And it's the Pharisaic mindset, the Pharisaic mindset that feeds this, uh, this arrogance. Hey, Doug? Doug? All right. The Pharisaic mindset that uh, feeds this arrogance. Matthew twenty three thirty three. In the midst of these woes, in fact, it wraps up the, the seventh and final woe where he says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? You talk about a hellfire preacher, <laughs> right? You're going to hell. There it is. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees that. Many of whom were probably experts in Old Testament theology, but they're not saved. Like Nicodemus, he said, you've got to be born again. All right. So there's the brood of vipers. Um, back to Isaiah then, Isaiah 14. Uh, 
We'll see the example of Satan here. And this, uh, this taunt begins in verse 4. And uh, some people take this different ways. I have not made up my mind yet. I, uh, some people view the prophetic shift with verse 12. And so they take 4 through 11 as speaking to a human being. And others, I'm starting to get more convinced that the better approach to this is uh, to take the whole thing, starting in verse 4, as referencing Satan. Um, But, regardless, let's start with verse 12. Uh, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. And this is where in the Vulgate, in the Latin, they used, uh, we can thank Jerome for this, uh, the term Lucifer appears. And that's because of the Latin Vulgate in the 5th century um, as uh, a shining one. So we, uh, we've been stuck with Lucifer as a proper name for the adversary. I prefer the Hebrew Halel ben Shachar that's found there in verse 12. Star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. So here is self-exaltation. And what do we know? Everyone who exalts himself will be brought low. Right. I will ascend to the heaven. You know, a humble approach would be by the grace of God, I am what I am, okay? And he will exalt me at the proper time. He doesn't say that. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. More self-exaltation. And particularly in a seating context. Now notice, he has a throne. He has a throne. That can't be denied. I believe Satan was a prophet, priest, and king in the angelic stewardship. All right? We see his prophecies. He's even uttering, he's using prophetic language to utter this. Um, we see his priestly function in the garments and the stones that he bears in his sanctuaries in Ezekiel 12. And the throne reference uh, is the king application. He's prophet, priest, and king. Uh, he has a throne, but he's not content with where that throne is positioned. All right. And here's another seat. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. And I believe that's the right hand of the Father. I believe the mount of the assembly is in the heavenly places. I believe that this is not an earthly setting. That uh, I I connect that to the right hand of the Father in the recesses of the north. If, in fact, the Father is to the east, all worship was oriented eastward. If the Father is to the east, then his right hand is going to be to the north. haven't written a book on that yet, but I'm still... uh, Putting some studies together. Uh, And then more exaltation. There's five of these totally. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, that one is not only is it the fifth and final one, but it really kind of combines them all into together, and it's the greatest of all the five blasphemies. Um, He is a creature. And yet he's going to disavow his creature status to try to lay equality to the uncreated to claim equality to the I am. Remember, God is the only I am that cannot that can disavow any becoming statement. Satan became who he was on the day he was created. God is the only uncaused, uncreated, unbe- unbegotten being. And yet he claims he can be equal with God. And this not only defies God and his existence, but it also is a tremendous attack upon the exaltation of Jesus Christ when he says, I and the Father are one. That's the reality here of what Satan was lusting after. All right. So, if you exalt yourself, what's going to happen? Verse 15. (laughs) Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? No, don't. Don't get all wrapped up about the word man there, okay? Angels are called men. Um, doesn't say he's a human being, he's an angel being, and all the angel beings were men. It's not, a, it's not an obstacle to call this, to call him a man here. Is this the one? Is this the masculine singular? Who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness. Remember Tohu Wabohu? Okay. I think this is Tohu. It's half of the, it's one or the other. I think it's Tohu. 
uh, and notice overthrew its cities. There were cities on this earth before it was Tohu Wabohu. I think that's undeniable. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Boy, I want to study that some more. Part of the angelic warfare included the execution of his captives. When you don't allow your prisoners to go home, that's right. Hitler was not going to allow Bonhoeffer to be released at the end of the war, was he? Made sure that Bonhoeffer was executed before the Allies could liberate the, the uh, prison camp location there. You know, we think about angels today as being immortal and unable to be killed. You know, that's what immortal means, unkillable. What, but were they always unkillable? Were they always immortal? Is it a possibility that they are immortal now because they are locked into their eternal destiny? But prior to the Tohu Wabohu destruction, prior to the end of the angelic age, could they have been um, killable? See, I think this verse is a strong indicator that that's the case. We have other gleanings, other glimpses as well. Remember, we don't have the angel Bible. We've got the human Bible. And our information on that before Adam world is very sketchy. But there it is. I think when you take it all the way down to verse 21, prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. And this is a judgment upon the end of the angelic realm, but it's also a judgment upon the, uh, the Nephilim invasion. It's also a judgment that will uh, actually end the millennial reign when all the universe is destroyed by, uh, by fire. And uh, the iniquity of their fathers is the angelic influence. The sons are the humans that are under angelic influence. But filling the earth with their cities. That verse needs to be um, connected to Genesis more often than it is when he tells uh, Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. When he tells Noah's children after the flood to fill the earth and subdue it. God wants this earth filled, but he wants this earth filled with regenerate human beings, uh, not with satanically influenced followers of the adversary. Okay. Well, there it is. So I hope it gets a little bit more vivid now when you're reading in Hebrews 1 and the author of Hebrews asks the rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever say, right, yeah. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's more than just a rhetorical question. Answer that question. There's a specific angel he's got in mind, right? Those verses in Hebrews 1 are nailing Satan to the angelic wall. To which of the angels? Not you, Satan. Not you, Halal ben Shachar, you're not the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You're not the eternal Son of God, Son of Man. Um, this throne is not for you. So Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. You know, I think a lot of this is part of what goes into training. Training of pastors, training of missionaries, and training of uh, when does a man know that he's ready? Well, it's not for him to say. And if he says he's ready, maybe he's not. <laughs> if uh, if um, if you're going to claim it for yourself, then maybe there's other issues that have to be worked out before ordination. Okay, uh, ordination. When when Ralph told me I was ready, I was still saying I wasn't ready. When I told Cliff he was ready, he was still telling me he wasn't ready. And that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. Uh, if you're going to claim a seat, the seat of Moses or the seat of Ralph or the seat of whatever, um, if you're going to claim it for yourself, ask, ask yourself why. Maybe he should be the one that seats you when he says you're ready. And that's the, I'll never forget, you know, the colonel always taught, um, you're never promoted until he promotes you. Unless he promotes you, you're not promoted. You want to promote yourself? Well, that's following a different father, isn't it? And I think that's important.
Now, why are we learning this? Well, understand this is a snare. James and John were vulnerable to this prideful rebellion. James and John were vulnerable to this prideful rebellion. You remember Matthew 20? Lusting after more seating assignments. Matthew chapter 20. They got their mother in on the, on the manipulation. Okay? And that's probably pretty smart on their part. I think all of humanity knows that if you want to manipulate something, you've got you to get a woman involved. Am I right or am I getting in trouble here today? Okay. I'm just saying, as a rule, the female mind is much more tuned to manipulative thinking. As a rule. I think the scriptures support that, and I think observation has uh, validated that. I could be wrong. But they did get their mom in on the act. Jacob got his mother in on the act. In fact, it's, it's probably more fair to say his mother got Jacob into Jacob's act in the circumstance there. We, we know Eve manipulated Adam. We got Jezebel. I mean, countless examples and the warnings through the Proverbs and every husband and wife testimony in the history of marriage. <laughs> okay. And then eventually the man just gives up. He can't compete. He's out of his league. And that's usually when he loses his temper or resorts to something ugly. Okay. Wow, where did that come from? That's not in my notes. All right. I'm willing to be shown otherwise. I could be wrong. That show me the scriptures. James and John were vulnerable to this prideful rebellion. Wanting to claim seats in glory. And it's not. Notice what it says there, though. Matthew chapter 20. The. Um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came. Now, I believe she's also the sister of Mary, the mother of Christ. And so that makes James and John cousins with Jesus. And that makes her a sister of Mary. Her name is Salome or Salome. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said uh, to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on the left. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. There's their pride. Oh, yeah, we deserve that cup. We can handle it. Hmm. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit and talking about martyrdom, the, the baptism of the cup here is the cup of his sufferings, of his martyrdom. And they're going to be, mar or well, they're going to suffer. James will lose his head and John will uh, the only apostle actually who doesn't get martyred. But the cup is the cup of suffering and they are going to suffer. My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. Seating assignments, including the seat he himself takes. He can't claim a seat for himself. How is he going to reserve seats for James and John? It's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The Father has already designed it. It's part of the decree. It's a part of the plan. And then hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. I said before, they got indignant because they, they were upset they didn't think about it before those two thought about it. <laughs> they weren't mad at the two brothers for anything. They wanted to do the same thing. Pretty sure. All right. James and John were vulnerable to this prideful rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar testified to the great reality of God's dealings against satanic pride. I think what we're studying today is actually the essence of the angelic conflict. Humility versus pride. And Satan in his rebellion is championing every aspect of pride against the will of God. And so here's a pagan king who gets saved and who utters the seminal truth of the angelic conflict. In Daniel 4, verse 37. And if anybody knew about pride, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world in his lifetime. Had uh, the world's last remaining superpower. Felt that he could not be conquered. And uh, felt that it was all to his glory. Great things he had done. And so... Um, he has to live for seven years as an animal to learn the humility lessons. 
I hope that you and I can learn some humility lessons without seven years living as an animal. Sometimes we, we have to be brought to the bottom of the bottom. And uh, sometimes we think we're at the bottom until we find a bottom even lower. But God puts us there, he breaks us, and then uh, when there's no more pride left, then we can start looking back up again and resume that upward climb. And this was Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. And when he gets his mind back, after living in the backyard with the goats for seven years, he says, at that time, verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. I think the only reason that happened was because Daniel held the kingdom for him for those seven years. It's the only way that some general or some son or some other, if you know the Babylonian history, the only way he'd get a kingdom back after seven years is if there was a faithful man functioning as a steward. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. That right there is the seminal statement of the angelic conflict. Humbling those who walk in pride. The um, Why is the church teaching the fallen angels anything? Why do the... Why, you know, we're... we're Witnesses to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Why is he using our testing and our grace? Why is he using us to teach the angels? And he's teaching both elect angels and fallen angels. Why bother teaching them anything? They're going to they're be thrown into hell. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. What, what do they need to learn? See. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. And it's the eternal declaration of those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And they're going to be humbled before they get to the lake of fire. They're going to be humbled through what they learn here in time prior to the great white throne. And then that humbling will continue for all eternity in the lake of fire. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to wait till his eternal state to learn his lessons of humility. Neither does Satan. Satan gets humbled every day. When his temptation fails and a believer and a believer trusts in the Lord and claims the promises, you know, when a little six year old girl can memorize a Bible verse and resist a temptation and bear fruit. You think you think that's humble Satan? Oh, absolutely. This mighty dragon just got whooped by that six year old little girl. (laughs) And I love that. I love that. And I asked that question Sunday night about who's, we were talking about God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I asked, we had 14 kids here that night, and I said, and who is his only begotten son? And all those little voices said, Jesus. Man, that dragon just got humbled, didn't he? And I love that. Now, this uh, chair of Moses, let's look at this. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. A lot of times that gets overlooked. Because in the haste to start, uh, you know, ragging on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, I think that a lot of times as we read through this, we overlook the fact that the doctrinal content coming from Moses has to be observed. It says, do and observe. All that they tell you, do and observe. If it's from Moses, if Moses wrote it, then you've got to do it. Not because the scribes and Pharisees told you. Because Moses told you. In other words, it's in the Word of God. It's in the Bible. All right, so the chair of Moses. In this case, the chair is a judicial chair. Moses was the law giver. They are the law um, adjudicators, right? They're not writing the law, but they're seated on a judicial bench, ruling on the law. 
And this is what they crave. Oh, they love this. See, the Pharisees especially, they viewed themselves in a mosaic capacity because they were arch enemies with the Sadducees. They weren't priests. Okay, the, the Sadducees were the priestly party. Uh, the priests were all aligned with the Sadducee party. Okay, the Pharisees didn't have priestly claim, but they they accrued their status because of their knowledge of Scripture. They accrued their status by their ability to teach the law. They they became experts in the law. That's what a, that's, you know what a lawyer is. And the scribes were the copyists of the law. And you weren't authorized to be. I mean, you couldn't just volunteer one day and say, "Hey, can I copy a scroll today?" No. In order to earn the title scribe. Man, you were fully trained, you were fully vetted, you were fully, you were an expert in that which you were copying. And so these positions could be worked for, they could be earned, they could be deserved, and, and you could be rightfully proud of your achievement in that regard, but sadly, you would then become wrongfully prideful over the achievement you've accrued. And these scribes and these Pharisees seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They, they went from simply being recorders and copyists experts as it were now they have a right to actually issue rulings to issue rulings and it gets out of control real quick because it doesn't take long and now all of a sudden not only are you no longer just simply ruling based on what the law says you're now painting a finer brush ruling based on what you want it to say what you think it says okay and you end up, you can't be another lawgiver, but you can legislate from your bench. And there's a tremendous amount of that that takes place in the rabbinic system here, what we're going uh, to study. I'm almost out of time. Um, but this is point B in the outline. All of this is under introduction. We've got A, B, C, and D under the introduction. Point B, the chair of Moses has an inherent authority. And it's inherent to the chair, to, to Moses, not to, not to these usurpers. The chair of Moses has an inherent authority. Obedience to the word of God is always expected despite the illegitimate leadership. Despite the illegitimate leadership. Hmm. You know, um, what does a person do when they're sitting in a church and there's a lady pastor there? I believe that's illegitimate leadership. It violates 1 Corinthians, it violates 1 Timothy. That the pattern for the New Testament is that women are not to be pastors. So you're sitting in a church and there's a woman pastor and she's bringing the, the message and she's reading a verse or doing whatever. Can you ignore it because it's a woman that's reading it to you? Or do you acknowledge the reality that the Word of God is where the authority is and you submit to the Word of God? And then you submit to the Word of God and go find a better church. <laughs> All right? I want to I wanna be where the Word of God is uplifted and magnified in its whole council. 1,189 chapters, not one verse. That's 33,410 verses. Every verse, every word, every jot, every tell, I'm accountable for. So let's understand the inherent authority. Let's not overlook the fact that he says, All that they tell you, do and observe. Be obedient to the word of God. But then he says, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They're hypocrites. They say one thing and they do something else. And what invariably happens every time, and Bible teachers are vulnerable to this, pastors are vulnerable to this, they can teach. And then they, in their pride, they start thinking that, well, it doesn't really apply to them. Or, well, you know. And like we're saying in Romans 2, you who preach do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you think that somehow you're exempt? Somehow it doesn't apply to you? And so there it is. If, if, a, if a speaker is saying one thing and doing another, he doesn't need to be a pastor. He doesn't need to be a deacon. He doesn't need to be, a, he doesn't need to be anything. He ought to be just a student and get grounded, get locked in, saturate. Saturate your soul until you're back on track again. All right, well, we're at the top of the arrow. We'll pick this up. We've got C and D, and then uh, we're going to move into uh, the woes. We get into the, uh, it's either seven or eight woes, depending on whether you think verse 14 is legitimate. 
I believe verse 14 does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. It was inserted in later centuries. Uh, and it's really it's an interpolation based upon um, the Mark and the Luke parallels. So it does not belong in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll still teach it because it does belong in Mark and Luke. And we're doing a harmony of the Gospels, are we not? So uh, since it does appear in Mark and Luke, we, uh, we don't want to ignore it. Uh, but we do want to recognize that uh, the original scribe, Matthew, did not put verse 14 into his scroll. So we'll talk about that too. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Your word is truth. I thank you, Father, for that your truth goes forth here in this uh, ministry. And I thank you that we've got husbands and wives and parents and children learning Scripture together. And, Father, just so many ways we give you the praise and the glory for all that you're doing. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.